here we are. We're still sat here. We've been here a whole week. Only <laughs> it's the result of Farmer Phil's moisture in his grain. The most important results on Wiggly Wigglers for a whole week. Right, Rich, come and read oh, it. Before, oh, you, read, this, before you read it, I'll that. tell you that I okay. think that this moisture meter is reading 0.2% low. Right. But it's consistently reading that. And that's what I think it is, because compared to the other one. Okay. So there you are. That's nice. what it thinks it is. Dun, okay. Dun, dun. So that's fourteen point nine percent. So possibly fourteen point eleven percent. Well done. Rich. <laughs> you obviously paid good help, attention. Help me! Help me! Help me! Um, he's going to have to consult. But what does that mean then? 14.9%. Okay, so it's put that. Ridiculous. So, in terms of, uh, of the, the, the relative moisture requirements. The contract is for no deductions, it's got to be less than 15. Right. And between 15 and 16% moisture, you have small incremental deductions going up the scale. Now, because it's in a non drying bin, it's cheaper to take the deduction if it's 15.1, 15.2, even 15.6 because it would cost more to move it and dry it than it would to take the deduction. Right. But once it gets to 16, I think, 1, they then reject it. Right. Who are they? Who is this person? This is this, Let's partic- go and get this, is this particular <laughs> mill. But I, don't get me wrong, I don't think that they want to reject it because it's good quality wheat. It passed as a seed sample. It's not sprouted. You know, this year it's quite rare to have... Re- it's a reasonable bushel weight, so it's quite heavy. Yeah. Get it out, Rich. Just have a look at they, it. I was, I was looking at this machine because it's a fantastic machine. It's so simple to use. I suppose it has to be for, for yeah, farmers. <laughs> Which is probably well, why it costs could, a grand. Because you couldn't work it out, could you? 14.11. <laughs> <laughs> I was looking, I mean, it's great. There's just a whole bunch of different categories, to, uh, depending on what it's your crop quite, is. It's quite a clever machine, actually, because not only can it be used to measure moisture content, I can measure the bushel weight or the specific weight of the wheat, which is what another... What do you mean, bushel weight? Well, how much weight you get in, in a given volume. So right. in, in this case, it's kilograms per hectolitre. You'll hear Podchef talking about bushels of wheat, and a bushel is about <laughs> that much, but it is a measured... This is a radio show, Phil. <laughs> it's like a big sort of <laughs> basket of wheat. So a bushel was a proper measurement at yeah, one time, you know, it would have been measurement. a kind of weaved basket and of a size. Americans and Australians still talk in bushels, right. but I'm afraid we've been metricated in Europe. The Americans still use yards and miles and things as yeah, well, they, they do. They? And, and then they have their own gallons as well, to just to complicate it. Yeah, just it's to make because things. they don't want to admit they weigh 18 stone. Yeah. <laughs> That's why. <laughs> but Sorry. Basically, this, this machine will measure how many pounds, as in pounds weight, per bushel or kilograms per hectolitre. And it's just a measure of the density of the wheat, and that's quite a good measurement of the quality yeah. of, of a sample of wheat. It'll also measure the temperature of it, it'll measure the moisture content of it, and as you've said, Rich, there are a row of buttons down the side which are different calibration settings for different crops because it works on the conductivity of the crop. That's what it's actually doing. Right, right. Um, but it's quite a sophisticated thing. So how do you contest it, though? I mean, bar yeah. going up there with your own well, machines and saying, this is yeah. my load, right? I mean, how, what, what has happened? Could we video it and send them the clip? Of what? Of you measuring it on your moisture machine? No, I've, what I've already done is I've... So I've sold the wheat to a merchant. Sent a couple of hard-hitting boys up there. <laughs> 
<laughs> the way it works is I've, I've sold the wheat to a grain merchant, in this case Frontier Limited, who are a, the grain buying arm of Cargill's, that oh, nice small little company that exists worldwide. The largest company in the world. They have then sold it to this mill in Manchester. Now the mill in Manchester have rejected it in good faith. They've sampled it, they have tested it on their equipment and they've rejected it because it's outside the contract spec as they see it. So that the wheat at that point still belongs to Frontier or me. Frontier then phone me up and say, you've got the choice. You can either have it back and you will pay for the haulage up to Manchester and back again and any other costs that are incurred, which will be about £500 a load, or we'll take it to a store that we've got, Frontier have got, up near Manchester. They will tip it off, put it through the dryer, dry it so it's less than 15, and put it in the store. And that'll cost you 500 quid as well. Right. Mm. So I said, well, there's no point in bringing it back here. Take it to the store. At the point they get to the store, and it's in their interests as well, remember, that they take a representative sample from that load, they split it in half, and they send half to an independent lab, in this case in Lincolnshire, who will do an oven test on it, which is basically they will burn a known weight of wheat to ash. Right. And then you measure the ash. And that way you can work out exactly how much moisture there is because you've just burnt it off. Yeah, but what about the fact that presumably if you take the wheat off for a trip in the car... Or in the post, you know, say it was a lovely sunny day or, you know, it's going to change, isn't it? You can make it change. These machines are temperature compensated, but you do have to be careful that the sample is stable. So that if you put it in the sun for half an hour and test oh, it... Why didn't you just dry it to under 14 and well, then you'd be fine? The point, the point is that I believe it, that it is. And the reason, so as part of my investigations, I take my moisture meter to the Frontier office just down the road. Now, they've got a sample of wheat which has been oven-tested, and what I just said was actually wrong. What oven-tested means, they put it in the oven for a measured period of time and it drives the water off it. They don't actually burn it. That's another test. So they knew that the moisture content of this sample was 14.5%, and we tested it on my moisture meter, and bearing in mind that I'd already said that my moisture meter was reading 0.2 low, it came back at 14.3%. So I know that my moisture meter is agreeing with their sample. The only bit of doubt is if there was a wet piece of grain within the heap. That's why I say that I'm not accusing the mill of any problems. I tested the heap with my spear and I couldn't detect any problem in it. But my spear cannot reach all the parts in the heap. So if there was a piece of corn that was wet, then I could come unstuck. But I don't think I... But then they wouldn't be in both loads. I wouldn't have thought so. So what's the upshot of this? Because I'm getting bored now. The upshot is... Are you, Rich? <laughs> I'm the, sure the listener's gone. If the I mean, has gone on for weeks. If <laughs> the independent result comes back at less than 16%, then the mill in Manchester will pay all the cost. Right. So they will pay Frontier everything and I will get my money as contracted. Okay. If it comes back at over 161 then I get to pay all the costs and I get to pay for the independent moisture sample and then I go and cry in my beer muchly. Yeah. There's a bit of a um, problem with the whole thing, though, isn't there, Phil? Because who buys the wheat? Cargill. Who sells you the wheat to plant in the field? Is it Cargill? All sorts of people. But who supplies you with the nitrogen 
to go on the field. I actually buy my nitrogen from Frontier at the moment, yeah. Cargill. Cargill. So it is once again, isn't it, that the big boys have got the power and little old Farmer Phil with his pokey moisture meter in the farmhouse is struggling against the I hear global e- I hear giant exactly what that you're is saying, squeezing him both ends into a pulp of farmer jelly. In this particular instance, that is not the case. Cargill's are a big company, but it is in their interests that the wheat goes in the mill and all the rest of it. The fertiliser issue come in the other way. If you want to get at a company, the fertiliser manufacturers are the people who are at fault. It makes no difference whether I buy it through Cargill's or my local cooperative, whoever it is. The manufacturers... Well, I'm not trying to get at no, specific but it, in company. this instance... I am saying that farmers tend to let their inputs be controlled by huge companies and let their outputs be controlled by huge companies. Whoever that huge company is... It's a stupid principle because you are always going to be squeezed to farmer jelly in the middle. It is difficult because... I'm not having a go at them, I'm having a go at you. It is not. (laughs) (laughs) Given the number of conversations we've had about Monsanto, this is not in any way comparable to how Monsanto behave. Short-eared owl fact. There are between 1,000 and 3,500 pairs breeding in the UK. Not a lot. That's not so a lot. That's one a fair pair range, in, though, is it? 1,000 to 3,500. That's covering all bases, really, isn't That's it? That's yeah. from the RSPB. I think Even the answer amount, is... Even that you know, if it's a, a pair is, is significant, isn't it? Yes. I, th- I think the thing is, they don't know, do they? Uh, no. I don't suppose there are many short-eared owls in the garden big bird watch, were there? <laughs> <laughs> we should ask, was there any short-eared owls in the big <laughs> garden bird watch? Now, coming back from last week's... I did cut you off in your prime, didn't I, about HFT? Ah, uh, yes. The, the River Hereford Cottage Fork Truck. Yeah, that's right. The River Cottage so we'll trip. now talk about HFW, Hugh Fernley Whittenstall. Ah, uh, right. You and yes. he, he, didn't, you know, uh, no, didn't see Hugh. Chubby Hugh, Hugh, Hugh wasn't down at the, uh, the event. No, because you there? imagine... Uh, no, he doesn't live there. No, because you imagine the River Cottage... So the River Cottage HQ... Is uh, is very much a, a, a place where people can visit and see where some of the animals are farmed and go there to eat. So they run. Yeah, some you got the cottage where you put the, and, the, the fish in the chimney and the stream. No, all those days are gone. Have it's oh. a bit like Wiggly's. You know, Wiggly's, <laughs> Wiggly's started off small and very innocent, is now and is now a sort of mighty machine going <laughs> forward. And and uh, and and River Cottage HQ is very much like that. So you have Hugh somewhere elevated, you know, and uh, and beneath him, uh, uh, you know, a whole shoal of helpers, like uh, me. keen individuals <laughs> like me, who <laughs> 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 run around <laughs> making sure that all is all is groovy. So he um, he wasn't there, uh, but there were lots and lots of people there. Uh, obviously, you know, they had a, they and they had a full house, and they had some had interesting, he gone to the interesting dentist, displays there. Perhaps that was the problem. Yeah, possibly, <laughs> possibly. I'm not sure, but I imagine he probably thinks, or he can have a weekend. I think he quite likes his weekends off so if he doesn't have to engage with people. You imagine someone in that situation has to speak to people all the time and, and people are quite sycophantic. He probably is glad to have a break from it all. So he wasn't there, but there were lots of people there. Uh, certainly Gil was there that, uh, that cooks at River Cottage HQ. 
the chef whose name escapes me was also there who uh, who cooks at uh, at the canteen in Axminster who was really really fantastic apparently doing his present unfortunately I couldn't really get away from the stand so um, Sarah who I took down went to see a couple of the presentations and uh, she said that his presentation on making pasta and things like that was absolutely amazing and and apparently I'd, I'd heard great reviews from the canteen that people had eaten there I thought it was I mean, it's slightly inappropriate perhaps to call it you know a really smart restaurant I don't know, it's necessarily really smart, but a restaurant that serves really good food, a canteen. Anyway, that's what they've chosen to call it. Unfortunately, I didn't have a chance to have a rattle with him. But one of the uh, the females that works at the canteen, we had a really good chat, and we've set up a can of worms in their a courtyard garden behind the canteen to deal with their food waste. Because do you remember last time I went down to the River Cottage HQ there and set the wormery up, that yeah. big bespoke wormery, for them to put their kitchen waste, which they are piling in there. Unfortunately, it's doing really well. It's it's thriving and all the worms are feasting away on a whole world. Did you check it out? Potato. I did check it out and took some photos and things like that. So that's quite good. Chuffed to bits with that. So they're going to set up a, a, a can of worms at, uh, at their canteen restaurant. Now, they were also saying about... They want to do a podcast feature and things like that and, and organise an event around this, you know, the wormery and, uh, and getting things. I thought, so I thought that's quite smart. But they also talked about getting in a rocket because they want to deal with all their food waste. And I'm kind of thinking that rockets uh, principally are, are, work relatively well, but you don't get the finished product from a rocket, do you? So I'm going to try and persuade them to have a, a larger wormery to try and deal with all their The rocket their composter works really well with Bokashi'd kitchen waste. That was how they started doing it in Tower Hamlets. Well, it's an interesting thing, actually. It, it, rocket doesn't necessarily work well because of uh, the fact that you use Bokashi. It, it, it works... Uh, the, the reason that Bokashi was used down there, um, the community, East London Community Recycling Partnership, used Bokashi was to stop pathogens forming in the waste prior to collections mm. where it was put into, uh, into a rocket. Oddly, I listened to some a, a talk by somebody the other day. It was very good, excellent talk. But she mentioned about Bakashi heating up the compost. And it doesn't do that. My experience of Bakashi is it doesn't heat up. In fact, the, the microbes in Bakashi aren't the thermophiles that you find in the, in the core of a compost heap or muck pile that cause that heat. So I'm not quite sure where that, where that information was coming from. So I'm kind of thinking that because a rocket generates heat in order to break the waste down quickly and pushes it through what is essentially a, a, a rectangular steel with a, with, a, with a core and drill through the middle of it, Bakashi <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't, perhaps wouldn't really add to the, the process once it, once it begins inside that, uh, that composter. But anyway, that remains to be seen. So yeah, so it was a great day. It was a, it was a good day. We managed to sell some wormers, talked to a whole bunch of people. I talked to some people, great people from the Chili Farm. Ah, South Devon Chili Farm, who yeah. they, they said they've been following Wiggly Wigglers, and, uh, and they're going to they're gonna post you some uh, some chili chocolate for you to try. Because I said, oh, we're, we're looking for Ooh, lots of um, chocolate, uh, you know, lots of chockey. <laughs> to, uh, so that might be a nice uh, choice for, for folks to have with their bouquets. And we're just like that, about so. to put our Chococo chocolate up online. Right. So it's the English company. They're wonderful. Sally is a star. Right. And so we're going to put it up on the web. Timely. You... Is, this, is this what we have in front of us here? Yes. Oh, so you... Do you want to have another one? <laughs> no, you can have one. Okay. You are listening to the Wiggly Podcast Part 2. Mm. So there's no intro, there's nothing. You're in the middle of the session. So if you want to listen to the whole of this podcast, you need to go back to last week's because, in fact, we're in the middle. But I am Heather from Wiggly Wigglers. I'm Richard. With some chocolate. And I'm Palmer Phil. They are beautiful chocolates. Besides, listen to this. 
They are delicious. I can recommend Dotty the hen. <laughs> Very good. What happened to your hens? We talked about your hens, the demise of the Valerie and um, the other hen whose name constantly escapes me. And the other one, did it have a name? Um, well, Lillian had already died. Oh, Lillian, that's right. Um, but that left Valerie, and we had two new hens called Hilda and Flora. Right. And um, Are they relatives? I didn't really want to talk Relations about it. Relations or anything? Oh, sorry. Were <laughs> <laughs> you a little bit upset? No. Might well, distraught. Well, the thing was, what happened was that the problem was that I went out for tea, and when we were out at tea. It was getting dark, and I said, all of a sudden it came to me, oh, I haven't shut the chickens in. I always shut the chickens in before, you know, we go anywhere or anything, and that was the first time I hadn't done that, you see. Right. And so it was getting dark, and we said, never mind, it'll be okay, you know, it's fine, you know, they'll go into roost, and yeah. that'll be fine. So on the way home, well, I just came out of the restaurant, River Cafe, and there was a wind blowing, and I heard my dad's voice in my head, and it said... Fox always comes in a wind, because they do. They use the fact that there's a wind, and that's when they always get you. Yeah. And I said to Carl, oh, I just heard my dad's voice saying, fox always comes in the wind. He said, no, it'll be all right, because it was only like nine, half past. Yeah. So we came home, and we were like, no, it'll be okay. And Garby said, I'll go and check the chickens, and I'll shut them in. And he came back and said, pile of feathers. But I think the other two will have gone and roost in the tree. So the next morning we got up and the other two hadn't roosted in the tree. No. And it turns out that it wasn't a fox. It was Brock the Badger. Mr Badger. I tracked him. It was Brock the Badger. And he'd had all three. And interestingly, he'd carted them. It may have been more than one, actually, but he'd carted them back to his set over in Rolls Grove. Right. But what was interesting was not only were there abundant chicken feathers, sort of in various sites between here and there, but in the mouth of the set... There were blackbird feathers. Yeah, right. And so that set me thinking. And so we asked one or two people who are mostly known fox catchers, you know, terriermen, and they said, oh, yeah, it's increasing thing. And they reckoned that a badger will walk past a pheasant pen or a chicken run every single night until the day you leave something open or something's available, that they will go in the same place and they will just go and check. And we know yeah. that they go through the garden pretty regularly. Yeah. yeah. But I, I had no idea that a badger was that religious about how he did it. But apparently the blackbird feathers was that they get, certain windy night, these birds get blown out of the tree and when they fall on the floor, they tend to roost on the floor then All because right. it's dark. They yeah. won't. And the badger will, will have them there. And yeah. poor old blackbird had either roosted on the floor or been blown out of the tree. And the badger had had that as well. Right. And I thought, Brock ate seeds and, you know, he yeah. might have the odd mouse and this, They're that and the other. Eye. But it's I didn't... really bad news, though, because I really set them up for it, you see. Because, of course, the door would have been open yeah. and they would have been roosting inside there. Yeah. So... Yeah. I didn't want to talk about it. I wasn't going to mention it ever. It was a sort of non-talked about thing in the house. And, you know, I really didn't want to share it with (laughs) 10,000 listeners, whoever it is. But never mind, Richard. (laughs) Here we go. The short-eared owl fact. The short-eared owl may compete with the barn owl in some areas. Do you want another fact? Yes. The short-eared owl weighs 206 to 475 grams. Not much there, is there? 
Well, barn owls are very light. They're very they're, light, aren't they? They're very light they on the wing. They are all feathers, are they? Yeah, they are all feathers. I suppose they're light on the wing, so that they, uh, they're very quiet flyers, aren't they? I've got another one. I like this one. Short-eared owl's feet are feathered. Right. Keep oh, them warm. Interesting. Now, before we go, we must listen to your permaculture interview and we must put an official invitation out to Annie Wise, who will come on the show. She's from Eaton Bishop. She's completely into permaculture and I promised her that we would be inviting her after Christmas. And now it's summer. Perhaps we should. <laughs> um, but you found out all about permaculture. Well, Where a little was... bit about permaculture. There was a, a couple of presentations at Bishopswood uh, Environment Centre in Worcestershire had a bit of a day, uh, an open day. In fact, it was the Sunday after I went down to, to River Cottage. And so I just popped over there in the afternoon uh, to give a talk about worms. Uh, I listened to talk about Bakashi, but I also listened to a talk. It was, it was you know, relatively straightforward stuff, but interesting stuff. He had a kind of nice way about him, and he'd created a space in his backyard that was filled with all sorts of stuff that he'd uh, pilfered from uh, from skips and things like that, lots of buckets and containers and whatnot. He, he euphemistically called it... Skip surfing, which I thought was quite an endearing concept. <laughs> from, from, uh, Don't the Americans have the phrase dumpster diving? <laughs> yeah, dumpster diving, yeah, yeah. Oh, I thought that was to do with um, bowel movement. No. Uh, anyway. <laughs> no, no, not really. Uh, so, <laughs> so, anyway, he, uh, he was uh, he's an archer. Anyway, let's, uh, let's listen to, to what he has to say for himself. Okay, well, we've snuck off into a back room here at Bishopswood Environment Centre. Fantastic place if everybody wants to visit. It's only just outside of Worcestershire, but I've listened to a really inspiring talk uh, by a gentleman who I'll, uh, I'll ask to introduce himself. Okay, my name's Wade Muggleton. Um, I've been interested in permaculture for a long time, and I write for Permaculture magazine. Explain permaculture in a nutshell. <laughs> permaculture came from the merging of the words permanence and agriculture. And it was started by an Australian guy called Bill Mollison, who realised that um, agriculture was having a, a very detrimental impact on the planet in terms of using resources and sort of the actual destruction of habitats. And he came to the conclusion that we need to live a lot more sustainably. So it's right. about designing sustainable systems, really. OK. Uh, and you've, you've taken it to, 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 uh, to the extreme where you've completely geared your space around your house, your, your domestic environment, to the production of food without compromising the environment whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, I live in a, in a red brick three-bed semi, sort of very standard or ordinary type of house you'd find in this country, and uh, I've got an 80-foot by 40-foot back garden, which I've sort of designed, really, to produce an enormous amount of food, fruit and veg. So um, that's, an, that's an average-sized garden, isn't it? I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a former ca- it's a former council house mine, so it's very representative of the type of thing you would find uh, all over the country. So it's achievable by a lot of people who've got that kind of situation. Right. Fabulous. I, you, you really are a man after my own heart because I, I've been called frugal fishbone on, on many occasions because I, I, like you, am a bit of a, a skip surfer, to use your, your terminology. I thought it was quite an endearing way of, of pilfering from, uh, to explain pilfering from skips. Um, and you've, you've created a, a space to plant all sorts of wonderful um, fruit and vegetables in by quite literally pilfering containers from skips over the years amongst uh, many other things of course by built you've built raised beds from old picnic benches and things like that you found i mean is it is that rewarding yeah i mean i like the idea that you don't actually need much money to do gardening um, obviously if you want to there is a wonderful range of things for sale in garden centers but i quite like the idea of making things out of a 
things that are sort of going to waste or might otherwise end up in landfill and that sort of frugal nature of gardening I find quite appealing and I, I find it more satisfying to make and reuse things than perhaps to go out and buy them if, if I had the money to do so. Your vegetable patches are primarily raised beds other than, other than what you grow in containers. What are the benefit, the obvious benefits of growing in raised beds? The benefits of growing in raised beds is you don't have to dig them um, and certainly where I live it's very heavy clay, I wouldn't entertain digging it. Um, and if you keep them sort of three foot wide, you can reach from either side so you never walk or compact the soil and you can just top it up with compost. And I, I think digging puts a lot of people off gardening. But obviously a well-tended raised bed that you never walk on is, is a sort of an easy man's garden, really. It's interesting you say that because this morning I found myself sowing some carrot seeds in a, in a, a, a bed that I had some, uh, some vetch in, some, some tears. And, uh, and I looked at another patch that I haven't dug yet and, I, and it's just rock hard and I thought I don't want to do that <laughs> I don't want to do that. I'm not sure when I want to, want to do it but uh, it's so much better to, to mulch isn't it and, uh, and, and not dig you made a comment about you, you, you mulch with cardboard boxes when I created my raised beds I literally just nailed the wood together sat it on the lawn which was the previous use and then I put flattened cardboard boxes in the bottom of the raised bed and put soil and compost on top so the cardboard would prevent the grass regrowing and over time rot down and add to the organic matter in the soil and I presume now six or seven years later that's long since rotted away and uh, I've got a deep rich soil that I've never had to dig really so raised beds on top of poor ground is my answer. Fantastic okay it's been great speaking to you thanks very much. Thanks very much. (laughs) There's no Monty fact on Wiggliness this week because he's run out so we are employing him a bit of child labour in the Easter holidays to make us some more research. Yeah. Until then, I want to share with you, we've got a new homepage on the Wiggly website. Me and Michael had a bit of, you know, weren't quite sure about this and that, but now it's absolutely gorgeous. And the point is, there's an offer. Right. And I'm going to do my plug despite you, Ricardo. <laughs> <laughs> and what it is, is if you spend £100, you get a £10 voucher that you can claim off your next order. Fabulous. The most popular product this week is Choosing and Keeping Ducks and Geese book. <laughs> people will know you've made that up. Uh, that is a lie, but anyway, <laughs> I quite like people to keep and choose ducks and geese, so I'm just going to lie. Particularly it's by Liz- Rachel and Spikel, obviously. Absolutely, Rachel's got some new geese. She has. She's got a gaggle of geese, and it's by Liz Wright, and it uh, helps you choose the right bird. <laughs> <laughs> So you want to choose big, strong birds. (laughs) Have you read it, Phil? (laughs) No, I always choose big, strong birds. (laughs) You know. And that ends this week's show. If you've got a chance to pop us up a Wiggly review, that would be brilliant because we haven't had any for weeks and weeks. Go to iTunes. They've got a new section there. It's much easier to do it. Pop up a Wiggly review. Tell us what you like and what you don't. And we will be pleased to read it out. Anything exciting coming up for you, Rich? No. Absolutely good. <laughs> um, oh, I've forgotten <laughs> Megan's question just before we go. Thank you, Megan, for these two questions on Twitter. The first one is for Farmer Phil. Is there anything you're doing differently now because of learning from people you've talked to on the podcast? Absolutely, yeah. The idea of connecting with people who might buy my beef or even by the result of my arable crops. She means have you cut down on pesticides? I'm always trying to cut down <laughs> on pesticides, but that's not necessarily what she means, is have I changed what I do 
on the farm because of the podcast and social media? And the answer is, yes, I have. We've gone forward with eating our own meat. We've gone forward with things like the set-aside area with the the short-eared owls on. This is as a result of what we're doing here. And the second question... Thank you, thank you, Farmer Phil. Of course, you didn't mean the pesticides, I'm sure. And Richard... Is there anything you're doing differently due to learning from Farmer Phil and others? No. Thank you very much. (laughs) And that's the end of this week's show from Wiggly Wigglers on the Wiggly Sofa. I really hope you'll join us next week. And if you haven't listened to every podcast, you need to have a big download moment. And you need to download roughly 175 podcasts. And that will take you approximately 90 hours and 20 minutes and 33 seconds to listen to. Hopefully, you'll have a nice time listening to all that. You need, what you really need is a couple of trips to Australia and back. There we are. Bye from me. Bye from me. And bye from me. And bye from me.